Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. It's hosted by Kinexus. This is our continuous improvement webinar series. I'm Mark Raven, a senior advisor with Kinexus. I'm really thrilled that you're here, and I'm excited that we have uh, Paul Critchley doing a presentation today. I'll tell you more about Paul in a minute. He'll tell you more about himself and his story because the topic today is the importance of storytelling in continuous improvement. So I think we'll have uh, a lot to learn from Paul and, 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 and ideas that we can apply to sharing our stories about continuous improvement in our organizations and beyond. So um, you can see Paul's uh, contact information there and it'll be up again during the q and I'm just gonna share a few thoughts uh, about Paul. He's gonna more formally introduce himself and uh, his story, but I've known Paul, gosh, five, seven, five, seven years, something like that. Paul? I think it's seven, yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you want to add the other bullets here, I've, I've had chances to um, collaborate with Paul in different ways. He, as a, a podcaster, is a member of a, a networking group that a number of us formed about a year and a half ago called Lean Communicators. So Paul is very open to sharing and learning with others, which I've always appreciated. Um, he collaborated with me in hosting a Measures of Success workshop in Massachusetts uh, a couple of years ago, and he's been a guest on um, one of my podcasts, Lean Whiskey, that was, I think, also about a year and a half ago. Um, so, uh, Paul, welcome. Um, you know, Thank you for doing the presentation, and uh, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Great. Thanks, Mark, very much. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for, uh, for hanging out with us here today. So let me get to here. All right. So as Mark mentioned, uh, today we're going to talk about the importance of storytelling and how it relates to continuous improvement. This is something very near and dear to my heart, which is why we kind of put all this together. So I'll walk you through a little bit about the theory and, and some data. All right. I am an engineer, uh, so I got I to I get that in there as well. So as Mark mentioned a little bit about me, I am the president of New England Link Consulting. We started in 2012. Uh, I do have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Clarkson University a master's in management from RPI, uh, an MS in organizational leadership from Quinnipiac University, say that five times fast, um, uh, board member of the AME uh, Northeast region for a little while, um, co-wrote a book called The Whole Professional. But a fun fact I like to share about myself is I've been on the TV show Shark Tank. Um, so the story, shameless plug there, was... Um, uh, so I run obstacle course races. I don't know if you can see it over my shoulder here, but these medals are are from those. I've run obstacle course races for probably 13 or so years. Um, and one of the races I run is called is uh, called Rugged Maniac, and it's owned by was owned by Rugged Races, which is based out of Boston. Um, those two guys, Rob and Brad, were the two owners. They went on Shark Tank, struck a deal with Mark Cuban. Um so uh uh, so once they did that, it actually, it, they exploded. They do a lot more races. Now they got, the races got a lot bigger. Um, and I, but I, I, I actually have run laps of that race before, uh, before they actually allowed you to run laps. I did so for charity. So I actually got to meet Brad and Rob. Uh, I drove up to Boston, um, and just chatted with them a little bit. Cause they, they wanted to know what I was all about, why I wanted to do laps and all that stuff. And I had to sign a waiver that says, you know, if I get hurt, it's on me and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, 
But if you watch that show, you know that they do these like update little clips sometimes. So they actually had come to Southwick, Mass, which was Rugged Maniac's first ever venue. So after they had been on Shark Tank, they sent a film crew to Southwick to that race. Uh, I happened to be running that wave that they did some filming. Um, so that's how I got to be on Shark Tank. So it's a great bar story. I, I whip it out. I drive my kids crazy with it. Um, because I used it quite a bit. They're like, Dad, you weren't really on Shark Tank. Because when you tell people that, they automatically assume I was there pitching a product, which kind of wasn't true. I said, well, technically, I was still on the show. So that's the Shark Tank story. So I do like to start with something kind of funny. Um, I'm considering getting this one on the left tattooed on me somewhere because it's my whole life. Uh, but I, like, you know, I've spent 20-some-odd years in manufacturing uh, making jet engines, parts for automobiles, and that pretty much summarizes it. And I feel like even when we work with clients today, uh, people, I, it, it strikes me that people really feel like I'm just so busy. I don't know when to do continuous improvement. I, wh what time do I have? Not a, It's not an easy problem or dilemma to solve. I will just say that. But we're here to talk storytelling. So let's get into it. The thing I like to hit everybody with right off the bat, we are 22 times more likely to remember a fact or a piece of data when it is wrapped up into a story. Um, and I'll get into the reasons why a little bit, the psychology a little bit behind it. But, you know, in a 30,000 foot view, stories are memorable, right? They trigger our emotions. And that's why I have Spielberg and Henson here uh, as, you know, as pictures, right? You know, because we can, as again, I'm a mechanical engineer, both by degree and kind of how I'm wired. Um, so we like to think that, you know, whatever the data says, you know, that's what we'll do. Not always true. And it's certainly not true for everybody. Right. So we have to tap into our emotional side a little bit. Right. And, and share the reason why, uh, you know, uh, Simon's sign it, right. Talks about that, you know, share your why, uh, and that, you know, cause it touches a little bit different part of our brain, a little bit different part of our being. Um, and that's why I think this stuff is important because we can come in and say, oh, cost will drop and quality will go up and on-time delivery will be better and patient safety will be better. And it's like, those are all great things. And, and I believe that everybody wants those things, but we all come at these, you know, organizational issues from different angles. So I feel like if we, if we um, meet people where they are and use stories as a method to do that, I think we'd be much more successful. Uh, Gustav Freetag, he was a German playwright novelist in the 1800s. He kind of broke it down into what they call the Freetag experiment of storytelling. And this has been around since then. Uh, it's taught in every middle school English class that I've ever known about. So, but basically what it comes down to is you set the scene, then you have, you know, tension, there's a problem, there's an issue, some, you know, there's something we have to go do something about. Then you start to do something about it. Then it hits the climax. Then there's the following action and then ultimately resolution. So certainly, you know, when I was kind of researching and putting this whole uh, workshop together, that kind of resonates. And if, if you've been in lean or continuous improvement for a long time, you know, I think you could probably, you can feel the parallels to that, right? So we're going along, things seem to be okay, but then there's a problem, you know, uh, pick them, cost, quality, on-time delivery you know, patient safety, 
you name it, right? And then we have to do something. And then you enter PDCA, right? And you do something, you see if it works and you see if it works and you go around and around until finally, right? You can check it. Yes, it did what I needed it to do. Or are we going to continue to do that? All that kind of good stuff, right? And then ultimately, hopefully, you include that in your standard work. It becomes part of your DNA, to borrow that cliche, um, right? And that becomes your new current state. So there are, I break it down into seven steps, uh, but right before we get there, I want to couch this whole thing um, by hitting you with a little bit of data. Uh, a recent Gallup survey showed that 40% of United States employees marked on their survey that they strongly agree that their supervisor or really anybody at work actually seems to care about them as a person. I think that's pretty low, 40%, that's less than half. Um, if we doubled that to 80%, which personally, I don't think is a big ask. I mean, if you think about all the jobs you've had, I think about the jobs I've had, the most fun part, the part I'd like the best was the people I work with. Um, so, uh, you know, having those, uh, personal relationships, um, I think are important. So to have only 40% of us feel that way, I think is, it's unfortunate, but it's kind of sad. Um, and of course, you know, we have to build these relationships based on trust. So when I'm talking to you today about storytelling and how to, you know, how to, how to break it down and how to engage with people and open yourself up, it has to come from a place of uh, a genuine or being genuine uh, and a place of trust. You know, I can't walk into a brand new client and start saying, well, we're going to Kaizen this and put up a Hijunka board over here and we can, you know, add some PDCA, right? It just, it's too much for folks. Like they, they just saw me, they are just meeting me. And sometimes if you're a fan of the old uh, movie office space, right. You'll I'm looked at like one of the bobs. Uh, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people here probably had that feeling. So we, we can't come at it that way. We have to start off, you know, and build a relationship first. And again, lean improves quality and productivity and cycle time and all those good things, but it also lowers employee frustration. And that's why I highlighted it's, I think, again, for me, that's the biggest thing. Uh, the picture of the gentleman you're looking at, that's Kevin Hancock. He is the CEO of Hancock Lumber up in Maine. Um, they are actually one of the oldest companies in the United States. They got their start in 1848. And I, I want to say they're at least top three oldest family owned companies in the United States. They're at currently seventh generation. And he has this quote that I use all the time. Our employees are number one. Customers are a wicked close second, right? To borrow a, a New Englandism, uh, and I love that because that's kind of how we have to treat these things, right? We have to engage with our folks, and if they are believers and they know we care about them genuinely, they will take care of all of the rest of the business that you know we we put KPIs and metrics up for. So. If for nothing else, you know, it's important. That has to be the base. So I like to start a little bit too by telling you a story. Go figure. Um, because again, sometimes data isn't enough. So I want to talk to you about the story of Ignaz Semmelweis. Now, I imagine a lot of you probably know this story, but in case you don't, I'll walk you through it. So Ignaz, he was a, a Hungarian physician, um, and he... Uh, actually got a job in a Vienna hospital in 1847. But 20, almost 25 years before he shows up, 
So picture this, right? It's 1823. We work in a, in a hospital in Vienna. Roughly about 1%, give or take, of women who come in to give birth will die uh, in during childbirth from something called purpural or childbed fever. That's what they called it back then, right? So 1823, this is happening. Around mid-1823, that number jumps anywhere from 10 to 30%. So, so let me pause there for a second. Almost a one in three chance of when you go to the hospital to give birth to a child, you're not coming out. And we talk about that today in 2022. It's like that, right? We can't even imagine what that might be like. So again, halfway through 1823, this is what's happening. Now, Ignaz doesn't show up on scene till late 1846, okay? So for 20 plus years, this is happening. Now, the graph you're looking at here on this slide is a graph from 1841, in January of 1841, and every month on. And I know it's a little blurry. Apologies. I know you can't read it. But what I want to draw your attention to is what that line looks like. It's all over the place. Right. It starts at 15% and then it goes down to almost zero. Right. And then it's bumping up and down. Let me draw your attention to the highest point that was roughly in late 1842. That number is up over 30%. It's roughly about 32. Now, just imagine for a second, we all work at that place and the data comes in, mortality rate is over 30%. I can only imagine that that got everybody's attention and rightfully so. But then look at what the chart does after that. Month over month, drastic reductions. Now, I don't know what the root causes, corrective actions were back then. Um, there's no data to go look at and right? no, nothing in writing. But I can imagine that all of the hospital administrators got together and said, we have to do something about this. And again, it was a couple of years ago. So I imagine there was probably a lot of yelling, a lot of finger pointing, that kind of stuff. And I can also imagine that, you know, maybe people didn't report things correctly, right? Because who wants to get yelled at? So if you look at it, you know, in this, in this graph, that, that line drops down month over month over month to get down to zero. And then all of a sudden it's a heavy spike up again. So what I'm saying is lots of issues, lots of problems, all of probably the same things that we see today, where people hide things, they don't report things correctly, you name it. I'm, I'm, I feel okay in saying that probably all of that happened, right? For 20 years, and they're, they're all, a lot of smart people are all trying to figure this out. Now, Semmelweis shows up, it's late 1846, and and his boss pulls him into the office and says, listen, this is the data. We got to do something about this. Go figure it out. He says, okay. In three or four short months, he figures it out. And the story goes like this. At this hospital in Vienna, they basically had two clinics. One, and you could give birth in either one. One was staffed by doctors. One was staffed by midwives. In 1823, about halfway through the year, they made a change that said, hey, doctors in this clinic, you also now have to do some duty in the morgue and you have to cut up cadavers because we want you to learn more about anatomy and there's this and there, right. There's things that you can learn. So that's part of your job now and go do that. Okay, no problem. 
Nowhere along the next 20 some odd years did they connect the fact that the doctors were working in the morgue and then going right back into the clinic to help a woman give birth. The midwives were not uh, held to that same requirement, right? They didn't have to do anything in the morgue. So it wasn't until Semmelweis shows up and notices those two things. And he draws the conclusion, rightfully so, that says, hey, uh, you guys in the that are going into the morgue, you're not washing your hands when you come back and you've got all this, you know, stuff, germs all over your hands, and then you're helping a woman give birth. She's getting an infection, and that's what child childbirth fever was. Uh, they were dying from infection. So wash your hands. Back then it was with like a, a you know, chlorine phosphate, I think it was, some kind of hand wash. Uh, do that, kill the germs before you back into the maternity way. And you can see on this chart, that's what the red line is. And you can see the data is not only more reliable, but it's a lot lower. So I'd like to think that at that point, it would be a eureka moment. Everyone would be high-fiving each other and saying, great job. We got it. We figured it out. That is not what happened. In fact, Semmelweis was shunned, made fun of, yelled at, uh, you know, generally treated not very well. Because if you can imagine, for 20 some odd years, they had this problem. Nobody could figure it out. A lot of very smart people. And all of a sudden, this new guy comes in and, you know, a few months, he has it all figured and he has the data to prove it. So they had a lot of egg on their face because uh, the natural question would be, why didn't you guys figure this out, you know, 20 some odd years ago? So they didn't want to deal with that. So they essentially launched a smear campaign against him. And it got so bad that a year and a half later, he left, he quit and he left the whole town. He couldn't even walk around town because everybody knew who he was. And they all thought he was, you know, uh, full of malarkey. And that was his quote. I'm unable to endure future further frustrations in dealing with the Viennese medical establishment. They, it was that bad. Uh, spoiler, it gets worse. Uh, in 1865, he essentially suffered a nervous breakdown. Because again, he was out there saying, guys, I figured it out. All you got to do is wash your hands. And the establishment wasn't having it. So they kind of shunned him. And he just, he knew it and he couldn't get anybody to believe in it. So he got committed. So he had a breakdown. He got committed, took a beating from the guards, and he died two weeks later from, a, from an infection. So the very uh, symptom that he helped figure out, you know, a corrective action for is what he died from. Very sad. So the point of me telling you the story is, even though data can be looking you right in the face, sometimes it's not enough. And that's why I think storytelling is important. So let's get into it. First step, again, you have to be genuine and authentic. My advice, use true stories, not ones that are made up. I, I, I bet you a lot of us have been at conferences or workshops or webinars where you know somebody tells you a story and it's a great story, but you can kind of tell it's fake. Those don't necessarily ring true, right? To prove a point, sure, I can kind of go along with you on that. But the real stories are the ones for me that hit home uh, much better. And I'll tell you, you also want to be a little vulnerable. You want to share those stories that don't necessarily have a happy ending, right? You can say, I did this this one time, and this is what we were going for. And you know what? We boned it up. I didn't communicate well enough. And that's why I had a problem with people investing in this whole thing. It also helps you build trust. When you open yourself up and you can say, 
yeah, I did this and I didn't really work very well, but here's what I learned about it. I think people resonate with that much, much better. And they're more willing to listen to you. Because again, if we walk in as lean practitioners and say, here's what lean is and here's what lean does and everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns. I think people are skeptical enough that they're going to say, yeah, but I know that that's not always true. It also helps you build, like I said, trust, which is certainly a building block and respect for people, which I know as lean practitioners, we all know what that means. Second step, know your audience, right? What's the problem they're trying to solve? What do they spend their time doing, not doing? What do they like and dislike? You have to know what they're up against. Um, you know, I don't walk into a hospital or a medical office and necessarily talk about costs first thing. I generally talk about, you know, how much time do you get to spend with your patients? Do you want to spend more? Okay, well, what, what things take away from that time, right? So you gotta you gotta meet people where they are. It's very important. And you want to have some stories in your quiver that you can say, oh yeah, I, you know, we had this one client this one time that had something very similar. And let me tell you about that. Or this is something that I encountered, right? That sharing of information is very important. You know, and I again, I don't walk into a hospital and start talking about things in manufacturing because it's too, you know, with with if it's a new concept, it's you're talking a whole other industry and this whole lean thing is new. It's a lie. So you want to try to help people understand what the parallels and the corollaries are as much as you can. Third step, answer the question, why should anyone care? Right. So lean's been around for 30 years. There's lots of chatter on social media about adoption. Um, you know, sh- you know, what could we have done better 30 years ago to get more people excited about it, to get, you know, implement implementation rates up, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, for me, you get make it relatable and relevant. Again, pull from your history. What have you done, seen, read? that helps those people solve their specific problem, their specific dilemma that they deal with every single day. And again, we can hit them with data, which is great, but how many times have, have you had the conversation either as the giver or the receiver to say, oh yeah, what was, what was that percentage again? I, I can't remember what you told me or somebody asked you that question. Because again, numbers, 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 it's like it kind of all goes in the fray. But if you wrap it up in a story, 22 times more likely to remember it. Four, you want to use descriptive language. Again, follow free tag experiment. You want to set the scene. Use visuals as much as possible. If, if you're old enough to remember what show and tell was in elementary school, that was some of the, f- the f- most fun all right, things because you got to see this thing and then people could talk about it. We don't necessarily, you know, have, you know, we can't bring our pets in, obviously, stuff like that. But use visuals as much as you can. Pictures, videos. Um, there's a reason, you know, apps like TikTok are, are so uh, 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 popular or, you know, Instagram Reels, like that kind of stuff. People like to be able to see it. Um, you know, we can write a post, we can write a blog post or whatever, but that visual is much, uh, tends to be much more powerful. The ending also has to have a point. There's got to be some moral to the story, right? You kind of want to wrap it all up for folks. You want to have, hey, here's, I understand what your problem is. I have the story that I think you can relate to, but there's got to be some conclusion to it. Fifth step, follow a timeline. And I like to say you begin at the beginning at whatever point that is. 
don't jump around. We've all probably been at a barbecue, backyard barbecue or a party or something where somebody's telling you a story or a joke or something and they get sort of, you know, beyond the halfway point. And then they go, oh, wait a second. I forgot to tell you, uh, you know, the penguin was driving and the walrus was in the passenger side or whatever it is, you know, and it's like, wait a second. Or if you're, you know, trying to bring them along on a lean journey and they're like, oh, I, wait a second. I forgot to tell you that, you know, uh, you know, nurses were spending half an hour over here doing this thing. So, so remember when I said this thing, just remember that part. Okay. Now back to, it's too hard, right? You lose people. It's got to be succinct. And it's, it's, you know, it doesn't, I want, I'm not saying that I, you get to rehearse it necessarily because you don't want it to sound scripted and rehearsed and AKA fake, but you, it has to be crisp, right? Because you know where you're headed. The audience doesn't. So you need to lead them there. Six, you want to engage the audience, right? And I do this. We all do this. Uh, when we're leading a, a training course or a webinar or anything like that, you know, the, one of the worst things is sitting here and just blah, you know, just saying words, words, words at people, right? You want to engage the audience, right? You want to have questions. You want to have polls that people can interact with because you do lose people if all you're doing is sitting here and, and talking at them. Words of the wise, and I've screwed this up, use this carefully. Right. You want to have a lot, you know, if, especially if it's a big audience, uh, you know, thinking over 50, 100, something like that. You want to have the answer be obvious. Yes. No. Um, because I've had it where, you know, I threw out something that was a little bit open ended and somebody threw something back at me that I was not expecting. Very good point. But now it's like, you know, depending on how quick you are in your feet, it can really derail you. Um, so just be a little careful and be cognizant again, of who your audience is, who it's made up of, where they're coming from, all that kind of stuff. And again, remember, you know the story in all its details. As people are listening to you, they don't. They're listening to you intently as you're telling this story. So you want them to be following right along with you. It's little, you know, you want to deliver it kind of little bite-sized pieces. So they go, okay, I can get that. I'm, I got it, right? There's a reason why movies are and you know, usually typically what hour 15, hour 30, right around in there. And then finally deliver the punchline. I say punchline. It doesn't have to be fun. However, it does have to be meaningful. Again, you want to kind of wrap this whole thing up. And, you know, as a result, this is what happened. Bam. You know, we went from this to this, you know, we were able to get patient, you know, throughput from this to this other thing. Right. You again, you want to kind of bring it all home. Um, uh, in 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 comedy, they call it a callback. You know, you want to tie it back to the origin. You know, how did the uh, problem get solved? Remember when I said, you know, this is what we were going up against. Well, now you know we went from 800 boxes produced to 1,200 boxes produced over the course of you know after the Kaizen event that was three days long. Right. You want to say it. Because again, depending on how long your story is, not everybody's going to remember. So you want to bring it all back around again. So people can be like, oh yeah, now I can see it. And they can understand along the way. You know, I see how you got there. I see where the pitfalls were, how you dealt with them. All that kind of fun stuff. All right. So I know that was relatively quick. 
but I have a little pop quiz for you. So uh, since we're all remote, uh, what I'd like to ask you to do is, is you can think of this just on your own. And if you're feeling brave, you can throw it up in the chat. I can't see it, but Mark's monitoring it for us. Yeah. Um, so I'll question the question, where did I go to my undergrad? Where did I, what was the uh, college name? Well, wait for that in the chat. Did Paul keep our attention? Did we retain what he said? Cal State Fullerton, UConn, Denison University undergrad, Clarkson. We have a winner. It was Clarkson. <laughs> but you noticed, uh, I, I live just outside of Hartford, Connecticut, which is not, and I'm actually close to UConn, but I didn't go there. What was my bachelor's degree in? Let's see if we get any responses. Uh, engineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, mechanical, mechanical, industrial, mechanical. So mechanical this happens all sometimes, you know, we, we, we have a vague enough recollection from the story. Mm -hmm. This is very typical. And I'll explain, I have two more bullets and then I'll explain what I'm up to. Okay. How about my MS degrees? Um, do you remember what those what they uh, what they're in? What the topic was? Management, business, management, management, organizational leadership, leadership. Anyway, we have a lot of different responses. Organizational something. That's it. Yep. 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 So I'll tell you. So my BS was mechanical engineering. I spent most of my career as essentially an industrial engineer. My masters were in management from Rensselaer Polytech and um, uh, organizational leadership from Quinnipiac. We did have somebody put RPI in there for the, uh, All the right. not just the what. Great. Um, what year did New England Lean Consulting start? 2012. 2012. 10 years ago. Congrats. Says thank that. you. Yes, it was 20. Thank you. So I purposely didn't say 10 years ago because that's a little bit easier to remember, but it was in fact 2012. All right. Final one. What TV show was I on and why? Or you could just say what TV show was I on? Shark Tank. Shark Tank. I think, yeah. Everybody's going to know like, that one. That seems like the easier you ran a race for running. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So so here's the part in the in the presentation where I vehemently apologize to everybody. So in the beginning of this webinar, I was the one. Now, typically what happens is Mark would go down through and kind of introduce the guest and mm -hmm. kind of run through a little bit of the background. In this particular case, I specifically asked him not to because that's actually part of this training. So when I say I apologize... The very first slide I started talking to was all this boring stuff about me. And I know somebody is out there like, oh my gosh, it's one of these guys that all he does is talk about himself and he's going to brag on all the stuff he's said. So I hate that part of it. Trust me when I tell you, I when it comes out of my face, I don't like doing it, but I have to because as a point to this whole you know, training, I said all of these things. I said where I went, how, when New England Lean started, what my you know degrees were in. But just think about in real life, right? Again, I hit you with a bunch of data, but you it didn't like 
so for some people you remember it. A lot of people, eh, I, I don't know because why? Because what? It's super boring. Nobody cares, right? I know that. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything, right? But everybody remembers I was on Shark Tank because I. It's interesting, and I told you the story behind it. I expanded on it. I kind of tried to, right? I painted you a little bit of a picture, right? So that's kind of the point, and that's why I do this you know, training the way I do it. But again, apologies if for any, a split second at that slide, you're like eye rolling. So I trust me when I tell you, I don't like that part either, but hopefully it kind of helps you get the point. So to that end, let me share this with you. In season five, Rob Dickens and Brad Scudder struck a deal with Mark Cuban for their events company, Rugged Races. We'd like to strike a deal with you, 1.75 for the 25% deal. Let's see what they're up to now. There's me. We've been working like maniacs. And that's it. That's my claim to fame. So for what, two and a half seconds, I was on, I was on Shark Tank, but that's Brad on the left and Rob on the right. Like I said, they are, they're good guys. I'll tell you, they've since sold 80%. So Mark Cuban is out. Uh, and these guys own the remaining 20%. I think it's, it's 10 each and they all made a lot of money on it. I didn't get any of that. I don't get any of that, but I do get a good story out of it. Um, so that was the time I was on Shark Tank. And that is what I have for you today. So Mark, I will uh, throw it back over to you and then we'll do a little Q&A. All right. Thank you, Paul. And I encourage people to um, continue submitting questions there. And uh, while those questions are, are coming in again, please do use the Q&A as opposed to the chat. Um, but I want to tell you about upcoming webinars. The next webinar uh, that's available to Kinex's customers only is the training team office hours with Brittany and Adam. That's going to be on the 22nd, 1 to 1.30 Eastern. I am working to line up other presentation webinars for October, November, December. Uh, November's is scheduled. It's going to be November 1st about mindfulness and lean. Dave Kippen, who uh, presented about this at the Michigan Lean Consortium recently. Still trying to confirm the October webinar. Um, we've got a lot of great stuff um, coming up. So if you want to learn more about these, go to kinexus.com slash webinars. You can sign up to get emailed um, about those webinars as they are announced. Um, you can check out our blog. If you haven't been to our website in a while, it's been uh, nicely refreshed and updated by our marketing team. You can go to blog kinexus.com. Uh, lots of great reading and uh, information there. And then finally, I want to remind you or tell you about our podcast, the Kinexus Continuous Improvement Podcast. It's available through Apple Podcasts, Google, Overcast, uh, favorite podcast app of our CEO and co-founder, Greg Jacobson. Um, he loves listening to podcasts at uh, 2x speed, I believe, if, uh, if you're up for that. But the audio of today's session uh, will be there in the podcast feed. So I encourage you to check that out. And then with that, um, you can see Paul's uh, website, newenglandlean.com, uh, his email address, paul at newenglandlean.com. And uh, I mentioned earlier podcasting. Paul was the host of the New England Lean podcast. That's still out there anywhere you would find the Kinexus Continuous Improvement podcast. So I encourage you to go back and uh, check those out. And Paul, I believe I, I can spread the rumor that you might be doing some more episodes. Is that right? 
That's yeah, that's right. So no promises, but it is one thing. So um, we do have about, I think, 70 ish episodes already, you know, in the can. Um, so to your point, we're everywhere kind Nexus uh, podcast is we are too. So if you get a chance, I encourage you to listen, because as Mark says, the Internet is forever. So they're out there. Um, but we did recently, I just announced on LinkedIn, I did a little video. Um, we actually opened some new offices. We get some new office space. And part of the reason why we kind of uh, close, I don't say close, but put the podcast on hiatus was um, just running out of sort of kind of space and really to do it well. Um, so now we have some new space that I think we're going to use as uh, we have like an AV room. So we're going to have a pot, you know, podcast space as well as the same spot to do some videos, tutorials to you know beef up our YouTube and TikTok channels and a lot of kind of fun stuff. So we're talking about rehashing it. So yeah, relaunching it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So um, hopefully. Yeah. So we've got a, a question here. Um, how do you know when you have a good story to tell? And then there's, I think, related question. Should I contact the people involved before telling the story? So how do you know if it's a good story? When should you ask permission to involve somebody's story? Sure. So definitely. So first things first, you never, ever, ever want to uh, violate any NDAs, especially as a former employee or anything like that. Like um, I can tell you, cause you can look on LinkedIn and see it. I used to work at Pratt and Whitney in East Hartford. I made jet engines for the United States military for the F-22 Raptor and the joint strike fighter. I'm very, very careful if I have any stories to tell from that time in my life, cause I don't want to, I'm not cut out for federal prison. Right. So you definitely want to be careful in that regard. As far as how do you know if it's a good story? Honestly, if it if it if it's, you know, if it's something that you think somebody would resonate with somebody, I think that probably is a good story. You know, every story doesn't have to end in laughter or tears. Right. It's just it has to have a point and it has to be relatable to folks. So if you're a lean practitioner, you know, as I'm assuming a lot of us probably are. You know, we probably all run into very similar problems over the last, you know, many years. So that if you had an instance like that, I'm going to say it's probably a good story, regardless of how it ends. You know, it's going to mean something to somebody. And again, a story is a great way to open yourself up to folks to say, yeah, this is what happened to me this one time. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. And, eh, you know, I kind of wish it had turned out differently, but this is what we got. Those are just as just as good and just as important as the ones that, and everything was great, you know, and we lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's another question here. What's your opinion about clients telling the story as opposed to, let's say, you or, or myself, Paul, as the consultant telling stories? Is, is it more impactful when the client tells it? It certainly can be. I can tell you, um, we... We did some training for a company here in Connecticut a couple of years ago. Um, we trained all of their folks in like Lean 101. Um, so it was about 160 people. And at the end of the training, I talk about, because I talk about the employee frustration piece quite a bit, because that's, for me, that's kind of what it's really all about. Um, and, and you know, everyone in the room, you know, so we went through with teams, you had, I don't know, teams of like 25 or 30 and I feel like most people got it, but I'll tell you the the best part, the part that I think everybody felt was at the end, I told a story from my history. I call it the story of Chris and Tony. It's on our website, on our blog. 
And I tell that story about how I almost had one of my shipping managers quit because his job was so bad. He just couldn't handle it anymore, but he didn't, he couldn't speak up about it. So we eventually fixed it and he was much happier. So I tell that story, but then the CEO of the, at the company is always in there during the training. As I tell that story. And he came up to the front of the room in every single class and said, do you all remember when so-and-so and and -and so-and-so used to work here? And it was like this lore that everybody had heard about because these two guys would like yell and scream at each other. He goes, what Paul just said is exactly what used to happen here. And that is exactly why we're going to do this and we're going to do it differently this time. That really hit home because that was from their history. They knew it. They saw it. They could relate to what I said, but when he brought that up, it was, you know, very impactful. So absolutely, if, you know, if you say something and it resonates with the client and they want to say, you're like, oh, I, I got something, let them, let them go. Yeah. And, you know, there, you, you shared a story telling framework, Paul, there, there are lots of frameworks out there. And we talk about the client telling the story, one one that comes to mind and, and people can Google this. There's a storytelling framework called the hero's journey. And the one related thought to that, I think when it comes to consulting is the client is always the hero of the story, not the consultant. Like, I think that's a good, um, I think, you know, the right way to frame the story. And, um, you know, the hero's journey, this one webpage I found here says, Star Wars, The Matrix, Toy Story, Marvel films tend to follow, you know, and, and, and to a fault, sometimes, you know, people will criticize a film, oh, it was formulaic. Mm. So I'm curious, are you familiar with that framework or how do, how do we know which yep. framework might work? Best? Yeah, so there, I'll tell you, so there's, you know, it, it, there's no one right answer. It's whatever works. And, and you do have, you know, if clients have something to say, they may not be a great storyteller. Um, so as the facilitator, we kind of, you know, you have to get and keep your eye on that and, you know, do your job as far as facilitating goes. But to Mark, to your point, again, as as a consultant, especially, um, you know, I'm a third party provider. I want clients, they own it. Mm-hmm. They are, they're going to live it. I'm just there to coach, mm-hmm. right? So if they have something they want to share that means something to them, for me, that's, perfect because that means they're engaged they're you know invested right i don't want them to be just do things because i say so that's Mm -hmm. that's not going to work it's not long-term right we've all seen that that's why sustainability is such an issue you know folks like me will come in so i'll do this that and the other thing and then they do that and they're like see it's all better bye you know three six nine ten twelve months later it's all back to the way it was because Mm -hmm. again those are the folks there. They have to be the hero of their own story. And I would propose just one little thought there. A lot of people in the audience today are internal process improvement people, continuous improvement people. I think the same idea would apply if you're an internal consultant. Let the team or the teams you're working with, let them be the hero. And chances are when they're telling their hero story, you'll end up being part of it. And I think it's always better when the person you've helped is uh, attributing um, or, you know, thank, thanking you for the help instead of, in, instead of you, you know, kind of uh, tooting your own horn, if you will. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Well, one, one question, um, this, this is a question from me, because one thing I struggle with trying to get better at telling stories in different ways is the question of 
how much detail? So, Paul, you talked about setting the scene, kind of helping people understand the context. I get feedback. I'll, I'll call it loving feedback from my wife. She calls it the engineer trap, and she's an engineer as well. The engineer trap of like too much detail. Are, are, are you painting the scene? Or are you just delaying getting to the point right. of the story? How do you strike that balance? So it's, I'll tell you, it's tough as a, also a fellow engineer, my wife and I have this discussion. She is not an engineer, uh, but she is a buyer. So she works in purchasing, but similar it's, it it can be hard because, you know, I'll pick on myself. I am very detail oriented. So I like to know the nuances, but you got to kind of figure it out. And that's what I mean when I talk about having stories in your quiver, Mm -hmm. right? You want to, you know, and there's no right or wrong length to a story, but you know, ballpark, couple minutes, three minutes. So if you try to fit it in there, you know, if a detail pertains to the story, great. But if it's just erroneous and it doesn't really matter, filter it out. Because again, you want people, when they're listening to the story, you want them to understand the point that you're mm-hmm. trying to make. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to just, you know, you can't tell a story with umpteen, you know, 15, 20 pieces of data in it. They aren't necessarily going to remember all of that just because it's in a story. You want to kind of filter out the stuff that doesn't really matter, but you want to hit them with the stuff that really does. Yeah. And there's probably something to be said, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on knowing your audience. You might tell the same process improvement story differently if you're at a process improvement conference, as opposed to briefing your executive team when it comes to like the level of detail or the sequence. I know executives, as much as you can generalize, might want to hear the punchline, then the detail. Right. Right. So how, how, do, how do you think through understanding what, what your audience, how, how they want to hear the story? Right. And you're absolutely right. And that's, I think, a bullet two or three, right? It was to know your audience. So the way I like to talk about it is you meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't necessarily go out on, say, a machine shop floor and talk to a person who's run a lathe for 25 years about, you know, corporate profitability. You know, maybe they care if there's profit sharing or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's 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 too far out, it's too far removed, right? But if I say, hey, Mark, what gets in your way every single day? What are the things that you've brought up in the past 25 years that if you could fix it right now, what would that be? Or things that you've said before and nobody listened to you. You know, and what's the story behind that? Talk to me about that, right? That's where you get the the golden nuggets, right? Mm -hmm. That'll Mm -hmm. come out. So to your point, you know, if I'm talking to a CEO or a business owner, I I can tell that same story, but they have a different perspective. So you Mm want to try to angle, you know, the the story you're going to tell towards the problem that they are trying to solve, Mm -hmm. not necessarily everything. And that's what I mean when I say you want to kind of bring them along. So if I'm talking to you and you own a company and say, hey, you know, if you do this, you can save a lot of costs and, you know, your turnover rate will go down, right? Your radar is going to ping because those are two you generally big things that, you know, CEOs and owners worry about versus if I'm talking to a shop floor person that runs a mill or lathe, you know, if I could talk to them about, you know, better profit sharing and or making their lives, you know, seven to three easier and less frustrating, mm-hmm. you know, they can kind of get on board with that. Yeah. So another question here um, that asks, are certain types of stories more effective than others? For example, if you bookend the topic, like beginning 
with the resolution and then ending again with the resolution or Socratic stories where you tell the story using leading questions to get the audience sort of participating. It's what, what, what are your thoughts? about? So, that? so classic consultant answers. It depends. It, right. Yeah. Um, if you're dealing with a very large crowd, uh, you know, you don't want to have the, the, you know, the, the engaging one as much, you know, you kind of want to be more presented, presentive. I don't know if that's a word, right? Um, so again, it, it sort of depends on what your uh, audience is and where they're coming from and what they're looking for. Um, I can tell you, I speak fair number of conferences. That one's can, that one can be tough because I've taught classes and, you know, um, workshops where I'll have owners and I'll have, you know, frontline associates all in the same room. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to gauge it and take your, your best shot. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily believe or think that there's, you know, one method is any better than the other. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a matter of what's the appetite and what's the level of understanding, especially if they're brand new, you know, you kind of want to keep it a little, for lack of a better term, a little more one way. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you want to tell a story that elicits some emotions so they can, you know, invest in it and kind of, you know, get into it. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think it's interesting to experiment um, with different ways of telling the same story. Um, shameless plug here. I'm, I'm, I'm working on, I'm going to say this publicly because this helps strengthen my commitment to actually following through here is uh, putting together a, a book around stories that people have shared on the My Favorite Mistake podcast. So Paul, earlier you talked about the importance of leaders being willing to share stories and, and, and not just success stories, but struggles and mistakes and failures. And, and, and you're right, that's, that's a great relationship building um, thing to do. But back to the idea of telling stories. So like, uh, one of my guests, I, I, could, I could tell the story starting with the punchline. Three-term Congressman Will Hurd lost his first race. Like, oh, maybe that draws people in. Now, let me tell you the story of how and why he lost and then what he learned from that so that he could then win and then win re-election versus starting with the story of, you know, he, he ran for office, he won the first election, but it went to a runoff. He didn't follow his political consultant's advice because he thought he knew best. And then, you know, he lost. Like, there's that question of like, how long should the lead up be? Or maybe, you know, how surprising is the punchline? Maybe if if the punchline of the story is real surprising, don't lead with it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't necessarily want to bury the lead, right? Is what they say in the biz. But at the same time, you do need a hook, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that that headline of, hey, right, this congressman lost, but let me tell you how what happened, right? Yeah. That it captures, you know, some emotion. A lot of times if I'm gonna tell a story, it's it's you know, as aside from this webinar, which is specific to how to do that and the framework to follow, it's during training, you know, and somebody, I always encourage, you know, there are certain points in like lean 101 training that we do that I'll say, does this resonate with you? You know, tell me about, you know, when I'm doing five S I'm like, what is your office? Mark, what does your cubicle look like? You'd be like, Oh, or what does so-and-so cubicles look like? Or, you know, you kind of read the crowd a little bit and see who can, who's going to share. Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, Oh, you got to go see Danielle's cube. Like you want to see, you know, that one's bad or, you know, go see Steve's. His is like, you know, 
perfect. There's no dust bunnies or any, you know, so you kind of want to pull those things in and out, um, depending on again, where they're at. Um, but, um, sorry, but yeah, so you want to have those again in your quiver and be able to, uh, pull them out as, as needed, as necessary. Cause you kind of want to work with the, you know, work with the crowd a little bit if it ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, you want to have something that pertains to that. So then if you say, oh yeah, my cube was this, but I did this and that and the other thing, I'm like, oh, I had something similar, you know, and then hit them with it. Yeah. And then, you know, you talk about kind of gauging reactions, you know, as we're telling a story, if you're telling the story to one person, you can try to maybe, you know, read their body language. Are they giving you some sort of clues of like, okay, you know, speed it along or are they, are they really engaged? Um, and, and you can adjust accordingly. So that said, one, one question came in here from uh, Alicia. How do you deal with the challenge of not seeing your audience when doing a virtual session like this, when you can't get some of that body language feedback? It's not fun. I'll be perfectly honest with you. It is, it's, um, I'll add, it's almost impossible. Because you don't know, like even doing this webinar, I, I don't know if it's, yeah if it's resonating or not. I mean, it's real easy if I'm teaching a workshop and I see somebody do this, you know, <laughs> I'm like, okay, not getting it. Let me do something different. Right. Um, I just, in these types of cases, which is a great question, Alicia, in these types of cases, I kind of go to my tried and true ones that I know I tell well and are engaging and are, you know, like funny. That's my thing. Like I can kind of deliver the funny a little bit. Um, so that's, I kind of pull on those just to try to make sure um, I mean, as engaging as I possibly can be, people are going to get out what they, what they are going to get out of it. You know, I just did some remote training work for a client in Massachusetts and one group, I had two groups, one group, fantastic. Um, engaged cameras on mics on, I can tell second group, out of seven people, five of them had their cameras off and they were muted mm-hmm. the entire time. Now I know, you know, probably aren't even listening to me. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm Charlie Brown's teacher in their head yeah. while right. they're sending out emails to air quotes, get caught up. Yeah. I, there's, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing yeah. you could do about that. One other thing I was going to ask you uh, before we wrap up, Paul, and I, I copied and pasted and put it into the, uh, the chat, uh, Freitag's pyramid of storytelling. Setting the scene, the current state, like you said, reminds me of an A3, introducing tension, what's the problem, the climax, and then the falling action. Could you elaborate on that or give an example, whether it relates to A3 or not? What What, what sure. is falling action? Yeah, the falling action is like the outcome. So the climax is, there's a, all right, there's a problem and we did something and then this happened. The falling action would be in lean speak sustainability. Like, is it going to stick or is it not going to stick? We're not exactly sure yet. And then toward, you know, when the end, when it levels out, that's when, you know, okay, it's, you know, it's in our lean DNA. Now it's included. Everybody knows and understands and believes in it, but that falling action is that determination of, is it going to stick or not? Mm -hmm. Like what's going to happen now? Are there going to, you know, the descenders going to, come out and say, see, I told you it wasn't ever going to work and all that kind of fun stuff. So it's kind of the aftermath, I guess, Mm -hmm. a little bit, but right after. Yeah. Well, I think that 
aftermath of the presentation and Q&A is a positive one here, Paul. There were a couple of comments in the chat that what you shared was resonating with people. Even though I don't, you were directly you. asking, um, you, you got a couple of answers and responses there. So um, I want to, again, thank everybody for attending. I want to thank Paul Critchley from New England Lean Consulting. Uh, again, please go check out his website, New England Lean. Dot com. And if you have follow-up questions, paul at newenglandlean.com is his email address. Uh, paul, I'll give you the last word if there's anything else that you want to share. No, Mark, just thanks again. It was good to see you. And I wanted to thank everybody for hanging out with us. I hope, I hope you like it and I hope you got something out of it. We're getting a lot of thank yous. Awesome job. Great presentation. Thank you so much there in the chat. So again, Paul, right. thank you. And uh, thank you everyone for attending. All right. Have a great rest of the day in the week, everybody. Yeah, take care.